Yes. Uh, I would uh, not have used that same image of uh, our being, our meaning the centrist being devoured by the progressives. I think the, uh, the, the language that I used in that piece was uh, the progressives will be dominated by a sense of triumphalism uh-huh. uh, that uh, they will uh, attempt to uh, pass the entirety of the progressive agenda. And when I think of the progressive agenda here, I'm really thinking of the agenda of the Methodist Federation for Social Action, because I I think of that as uh, the uh, the most powerful of the progressive uh, interest groups that has been promoting that agenda for a really long time. Uh, and uh, uh, they will they will make every effort to make the agenda of the MFSA uh, the agenda for the whole church. And I believe that that has the potential to uh, to alienate centrists enough so that many of them will uh, will want to uh, uh, disassociate in one way or another from the progressives. Yeah, it seems to me that there's not even going to be – well, when you look at – a, a group of progressives did split off and try and do their own thing called the Methodist Connection or something like that. Uh, yeah, what they call it. M- MX, LMX in there somehow. Really. Yeah. yeah, and it, it that group did last Yeah, because well, when it's one thing when you are united against mm-hmm. a common enemy and just co-opting what they have built, it's another thing whenever you have to maintain it or build something of your own. And uh, I'm of the mind that that far leftist progressivism eats its own and and crashes and burns at a certain point, but. Uh, what's kept it going so far is people like me being the the enemy. So once we leave, uh, who's the enemy they unite against? Um, well, uh, so I saw a, a post on your Facebook talking about how uh, communism slash socialism isn't necessarily great. Are you familiar with uh, Solzhenitsyn and Gulag Archipelago and what happened in the USSR? Yes. So my understanding is that once they they killed or uh, cast out all of the rich people, it still wasn't a communist utopia. So they they found the descendants of middle-class people, the kulaks, and then they killed all them and took their wealth and it was still miserable. Um, I, I, would, I would think that that is a kind of a universal maxim for how far leftism operates. Um, it, I'm not saying they're gonna kill centrists, but I am gonna say, well, what you I think are saying here in much less dramatic fashion that once the the primary enemy is gone, you just have to find a new enemy to to continue to attack. Um, that progressivism is is intrinsically built against an an opposite enemy. Um, how how much of that do you think is like? I'm obviously listening to right leaning propaganda and think that neo Marxism is is the enemy and and has taken over MFSA and all these people. How how real is that, or is that a specter that I've just I've I've made bigger than it actually should be. No, I, I don't think that is a, a, a misperception. I, I believe that the now, mind you, I don't think that everyone who's associated with or supports MFSA mm-hmm. is a Marxist. Right. But I believe that Marxism has a comfortable home with MFSA and that kind of progressivism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the uh, objections I have. And one of the reasons I've never even considered becoming a supporter of MFSA is because of its uh, leaning toward Marxism. Uh, 
and and, and it may not. Uh, some of the people who support the Marxist ideal might not even uh, claim that title, and uh, or even recognize for themselves that that it's Marxism, but it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I've written about that as well. In other have you? Places. Yeah. 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 Uh, other op-eds or have you written, where have you written yeah. this stuff? I would Basically love to read mostly. that. I, I oh, post okay. most of my uh, thing, pieces on that kind of thing on Facebook. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think what I've done is, is I've identified, I think it's 10, maybe it's up to 12 now, a number of things that I've said, these are, these are the, the the goals of MFSA, uh-huh. uh, and out of that list of twelve, I I support two of them. Okay, uh, and only two. I'm, I'm unalterably opposed to capital punishment, and I do support full inclusion of LGBTQIA plus people in the life and ministries of the church. Uh, but all the rest of the uh, of the progressive agenda that uh, I I see in the pronouncements and the leanings and um, aspirations of MFSA, uh-huh. uh, and I reject it all. I, I don't agree with any of it. And it yeah. mostly has to do with collectivism and um, uh, the bigger is better in terms of government, that kind of idea that comes right. forward. Yeah, well, and what you focused on in the op-ed is that progressives uh, appeal to centralization of power and coercive uh, measures once once gaining control of power. And Precisely so-, so. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, my sensibilities are largely libertarian. And, and so I'm going, you know, as I read it, I was going, yes, who's this Lonnie Brooks guy? I Absolutely. He sees it. Um, and of course, I think it is important for people to understand that you don't have to subscribe to, to a certain label to fit within it. There are a lot of people who are neo-Marxist, even if they don't identify that way, even if they've never read a, a single neo-Marxist thinker, their values reflect a certain worldview that is is contained in that. So I was going to give you, um, I'm still going to give it to you. I, I was concerned you were sounding too right leaning. So we needed to give a corrective on the right, but you just said out, outright, you support the full inclusion of LGBTQ persons and not just involvement in laity, but also in clergy being married in the church. You support, uh, you, you're aligned with progressives in that sense, but oh, yeah. we We've bashed the left pretty good so far, so I wanted to give you space to bash the right a little bit and say where you think the shortfalls of of right-leaning renewal and reform coalition has been over this time and why it is that you haven't. Has it only been the stance on LGBTQ stuff, or have there been other issues that have kind of made you go, no, I'm not a right-leaning person. I am a centrist. Uh, From a political and social point of view, I I think the the one point uh, where I align with progressives is the one you've identified, which was a reflection of what I'd said earlier, uh, in my support of full inclusion of LGBTQIA people. Uh, uh, But uh, uh, theologically, I also, uh, I would say, identify with uh, progressives uh, more than I do the traditionalists in uh, I, I would I would not in any sense of the word be a biblical literalist mm-hmm. which is to say I, I would support a much more uh, some would call it progressive I might call it liberal uh, uh, use of biblical interpretation mm-hmm. uh, if, if you put it in quadrilateral terms mm-hmm. as 
one of my teachers, Albert Albert, uh, tended to do. And he was my professor of history, church history at Perkins, by the way. That's neat. Yeah, of course. Uh, the quadrilateral, uh, in my judgment, is a valuable tool uh, uh, and exactly in the way that Outler intended it to be, which he was, in fact, when I was in school and he was my teacher, he was in the process of developing that theology, uh, that teaching, the quadrilateral was what he was working on primarily at that time. Uh, and uh, I don't think he ever intended for uh, the quadrilateral quadrilateral to be conceived as a an equal-sided figure, four right. sides for sure, but right. with scripture as by far the the more important the longer side of the of the quadrilateral yeah. and the base of the quadrilateral on which everything else is based. But that's not to say that uh, uh, reason doesn't and and experience don't have a role to play in our formation of our authority. Uh, and so much more than most traditionalists I know and, and work with and relate to, uh, I I lean fairly heavily in my understanding of the quadrilateral and its role in, in uh, authority in the church, uh, lean on experience and reason uh -huh. uh, to, to interpret scripture and use it understanding that still scripture is the base the foundation so here's how i'm understanding you so far is you make a distinction between the words of scripture and the words that are uh in the shared covenant of the united methodist church which is the book of discipline with the book of discipline words clearly have meaning that that should only be interpreted a certain way and adhered to a certain way with scripture, there, there are probably multiple levels of meaning that are to be read in light of, of a general overall structure. So whereas um, leaders in the denomination will disregard wording in the Book of Discipline that they collectively came up with because they're on the right side of history, that's wrong because we, or not we, the United Methodist Church arrived at it in good faith with clear intentions and specific outcomes desired whereas the scriptures the, the delivery method and the purpose is not the same thing so so would i be right in kind of coming to the conclusion that you just scripture is scripture it's used to be it's it's not meant to be interpreted that literally whereas the book of discipline really is is that where the dividing line is for you uh, that's getting in the right direction for sure uh, jeffrey i think uh one reason that i could uh agree with that uh, mm -hmm. is that we don't have to go back quite so far to get to the original understanding of the discipline as we would of scripture uh, okay. and uh, uh, the the culture from which the scripture derived and in, in which it arose mm -hmm is so radically different from our own that that, in my judgment, has to play a role in our interpretation of its applicability to our lives today. I understand Whereas, that. Uh, the, yeah. the Book of Discipline, I mean, we're talking about uh, uh, some of that going back maybe to 1784 
and the Christmas conference, okay, but sure. not much of it. Yeah. Most of it is uh, 20th century and later. Yeah. Yeah. There's less cultural distance between us and the original exactly. authors. And yeah. okay. Well, that all makes sense to me. Um, so now what I wanted, what I wanted to do, we've already been talking for a while. I was interested in your talks on your thoughts on uh, Bishop Carcano's trial, regionalization, and the state of racial tension in the United Methodist Church. Uh, do you think that that needs to be a, a separate conversation later, or do you want to just talk about one or two of them now? It's it's your birthday. You decide how much we cover. Oh, I'm, I'm ready to go on uh, to whatever degree you are, Jeffrey. Look so. at you. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about the Bishop Carcano thing first. I saw your Facebook post. I'll, I'll, I'll make an overlay of it right now so other people can, can read it whenever they, they look at this. But um, you had some good history there. People like me, I don't think I've fully appreciated what you said there, which is this is unprecedented. The, never before has a bishop been put on public trial in this way. Uh, of course, Bishop Sprague was scrutinized whenever he denied the, um, the virgin birth as well as miracles. Uh, and then there was also um, in the predecessor denomination, uh, Border, Borden Parker Bound, uh, Boston personalism, uh, not just liberal, but far left liberal. Uh, these are the two public scrutinizings of uh, leadership I'm aware of doctrinally. And both of those went in the direction of, we're not going to kick him out. We're not going to do anything to it. Well, I guess Melvin Talbert would be another one uh, more recently conducting a gay uh, wedding, uh, a retired bishop conducting a gay wedding in, in a, a, an area that the bishop there had said, please don't do it. And he did it anyway. But they there came is, to a just resolution of, of all that. Was there a just resolution with Sprague as well? Uh, it may not have even, I don't remember for certain, but uh, I know there was no trial. Mm -hmm. uh, which presumes that there was some kind of resolution uh, and whether you wouldn't call it just or not is just a matter of semantics. That's the phraseology that we use. So just resolution, regardless of how just it was. Well, I, I interviewed a guy named Robert Barnes who filed charges against um, Bishop Olivito for doctrine. She preached questioning uh, Jesus omniscience and the uh, right standing of the second person of the Trinity. That seems to be have been just summarily dismissed without yeah. even going through the disciplinary process. That's correct. So, so well, the actually, let me make one corrective there. Yes, please. It's That is part of the disciplinary process because the, the person, and, and right, wrong, or otherwise, and I think it's wrong, uh, but uh, the bishop who reviews the, the charge is empowered in the discipline to dismiss the charge if he or she thinks there's not enough evidence to support taking it further. Okay. And okay. so it's, it can be summarily dismissed and that may or may not be the right thing to have done from mm -hmm. a, a point of view, but it's, but it's consistent with the power that's been vested in that person in our discipline. So hypothetically, uh, and I've, I've done a couple segments on, um, Bishop Carcano's uh, being brought up on charges and placed on, I think it's leave. Uh, she's still getting paid, but she can't serve in any capacity. Uh, she's suspended, but not, not, uh, not relieved of her pay. Yeah, that's correct. So the bishops in charge of reviewing this could have also summarily dismissed it and put her back in right standing, but yes. they chose not to. Okay. So originally it was Bishop Olivito that was overseeing it, but I, I think um, she no longer serves in the president of the Council of Bishops of the Western Jurisdiction. I, I, I forget if it's somebody else. It's not um, Escobedo Frank. 
Okay. Okay. Um, so that's important to know, I guess. Another Hispanic but, woman. Oh, sure. Yes. I, I, I have a hard time thinking in these terms. All right. So another Hispanic woman, she has also chosen not to dismiss the charges. And in fact, the, the, the trial is going forward next week or the week after in a different jurisdiction. They're doing essentially jury selection at this point. Um, the 19th is, is a trial date. And so I've 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 made a lot of calls. I've tried to figure it out. Nobody will squeal on what the charges are. It's amazing to me that they're going to do this live streamed for everybody to watch. This is indeed unprecedented. It it seems. I mean, I love it. I'm going to watch it. I'm I'm excited. What? How should other people feel about this? Uh, is this something that you should feel differently based on if you're left, right, or center, or is there are there some basic ethics? I'm in favor of transparency all the time. I just think people need to be trusted to know what's going on behind the scenes. So I love it. But so from your perspective, is this a good thing? Are they doing it wrong? What, what should a smart person think about all this? I think that we've, uh, uh, we've done the right thing in requiring confidentiality in the lead up to a trial uh, because of the possibility of coming to some kind of a resolution uh, and by having maintained the confidentiality, the uh, uh, the integrity of the person who is the respondent is protected that way. Uh, that's a, completely opposed to what happens in a secular process, of course, where yeah. everything is out in the open all the way. So uh, I believe that is a is the, I can't think of another one. I think that's the only place that I would support um, uh, other than complete openness in process. Uh, I'm uh, a very strong supporter and have been in our judicial and legislative processes uh, of, the, of the openness of process in United Methodist Church uh, at all levels. Uh -huh. uh, our, our discipline protects that actually most people don't know this is the restriction, but the the only remaining part of our book of discipline that requires openness of process applies strictly in a strict sense only to our general agencies, because that's where it is. And the judicial councils rule that a rule that's in that section of the discipline only applies to the general agencies. So our local churches, our annual conferences, and none of our conferences are in a uh, strict sense, bound to keep their processes open. Uh, but but I, th I think that's a mistake and that our processes should always be open uh, with this exception for confidenti confidentiality in the, uh, the lead up to a trial in a judicial process. I think the maintain maintaining that confidentiality is valuable and is important in the protection of the respondent. Uh, so uh, I think they've done the right thing, and they've done that the right thing, and uh, and had to resist a whole lot of pressure uh, otherwise from caucuses, from uh, uh, news folks, uh, from all, all sorts of quarters uh, to to say more about yeah. what the charges have been. But I think they've done it right, uh, and in fact, there was a possibility that if the uh, folks involved had not been so rigorous in maintaining that confidentiality, uh -huh. uh, that 
the process could have been found to be flawed on appeal and uh, whatever uh, findings were reached uh, 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 set aside and dismissed. Uh, do you so think, I, as I do, that they've mishandled the case by not meeting the deadline for um, moving to trial? I don't think so, because uh, the reason uh, for the delay uh, had to do with the respondent, with Bishop Carcano, uh, having uh, uh, asked for judicial counsel review of the mm. process. That put the process on hold. And that's really been the only delay, was waiting for the judicial counsel to make a ruling. And, and in fact, of course, what the Judicial Council did was say, uh, we regret it, but we don't have jurisdiction here and we're not going to make a ruling. Okay. So I'm with you. Okay, so um, the Standing Committee on Central Conference Matters, would that be considered part of the general board structure or is that outside of that, do you think? That's a gray area. Uh, they, they are... They're not a body that's created in that uh, general agency section of the okay. book of discipline. Uh, so uh, uh, they're not rigorously speaking uh, an agency of the church in the same way that the General Board of Global Ministries is. But they are a commission. So uh, some of the, uh, the rules and regulations that apply to other agencies would apply to them as well. They're a creature of the general conference. It has seemed to me that there is a culture of, of secrecy and obscurantism um, at every level of the United Methodist Church. While I was still on the inside uh, in my own annual conference, I tried to get transparent, transparent financial reporting, uh, bank state, not bank statements, but um, account statements, how much the line item budget never could. Uh, from what I can tell, that's very rare from conference to conference. Um, any conference boards that met i could never find out when or where they were meeting i couldn't get an invite i couldn't get meeting minutes from those meetings and then um once i started looking at what happened at general conference 2019 and why it is that the traditional plan wasn't able to get passed in its fullness the the answer that came back to me was the standing committee on central conference matters gutted it before it even came to the floor and so i started asking where can i get a hold of those minutes of deliberations and they supposedly don't exist. Um, after they, they recently met, I asked for meeting minutes from that, and they, they had nothing uh, to offer me. So it's, it's, it's felt to me like there's no interest in transparency on any level, um, but so far as um, uh, uh, General Board of Church and Society, you're saying that if I were to ask for any of their documents, that I can file something like a FOIA request and they have to, to give it. That's accurate. Yes. You, you, uh, uh, that would be one agency that's uh, uh, absolutely bound by the open meetings uh, rule in the Book of Discipline. It's uh, good some to know. Of the others are, are in the gray area. The, the one that has been the most frustrating to me is the General Commission on, uh, um, excuse me, uh, the Commission on the General Conference. Uh, they regularly uh, flout the requirement for open meetings. Um, and they have no authority for doing that, mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't matter. The, the primary criterion that is used as um, the reason, it's not a justification because there isn't one, <laughs> as the reason for closing a meeting is the embarrassment factor. Uh -huh. 
they don't want to be embarrassed. Uh, uh, and uh, so they closed the meeting uh, to keep the discussion confidential. Uh, and that is absolutely against every uh, rule that we can think of in the church. Yeah, I interviewed Joe DiPaolo because he was the whistleblower from that meeting saying that uh, they never even tried to figure out if uh, if they could have had general conference before next year, that that it was all uh, a farce. Um, yeah, and it would and be too embarrassing I, to let that out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so the 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 Standing Committee on Central Conference Matters (SCCCM). It, it, my my next topic was regionalization, and it and it easily goes there. Um, I don't know if you heard uh, the SCCCM just recently dismissed Simon Mafunda, who was elected by the General Conference to serve as a delegate from Zimbabwe. I believe his bishop just called him and and gave him no good reason, but said, you're off the team now. He was one of the only ones not willing to play ball with the rest of the team that came up with this regionalization plan in concert with the connectional table. I haven't read that uh, legislative language yet. Has I don't think it's even been presented yet, just the bullet points. Am I right to understand that? You're right. And that's, uh, that's kind of frustrating and really distressing, in fact, that that body of three bodies actually um, that that they have not published the legislation and we know the legislation exists because uh, the central conference matters committee uh, and the connectional table have both approved it supposedly Mm -hmm. i mean that's what their their press release said and you can't approve legislation you haven't seen i don't think i I wouldn't (laughs) and i suppose they didn't either well, that means the legislation exists, but it's not available. You can't read it. No. So the way I saw your write-up, and I'll, I'll place this on an overlay as well, but the way I remember your write-up stating it is, it is a good thing for regionalization to happen. However, the way that they do it is just creating a whole new uh, structure in the church. They're not actually abolishing the jurisdictions within the, the American church. They're just creating a new American region that stands between the jurisdictional conference and the general conference. Do I have that detail right? Yeah, that's that's part of what my critique was. I I, I actually made two. One is I, I I don't see that we do that we need another complete another uh, another complete uh, layer of structure mm-hmm. with all the expense that that would entail. And uh, the argument could be made, I suppose that in the beginning it's not going to uh, cost a whole lot of money we you know we'll meet at the beginning or at the tail end of a general conference whatever and the same delegates would serve uh and that's true but uh the one thing we know about bureaucracy is it never tends to shrink right it always grows and so we can see that's going to become a whole new expensive layer of church the way that's been proposed uh and and the other uh, main critique that I've got of that is that uh, I don't know anybody in the church who believes that the reason the church is separating in the United States is because of regional differences between the church in the United States and the church in Africa or the church in Philippines or the church in Europe. It's the, the separation of the church in the United States is taking place because of differences within the church in the United States. And regionalizing uh, the church between America and Africa doesn't address that problem. If you well, want to do regionalization, 
as a means of addressing the unity of the church, a way to keep the church together, that's not the way. We're going to have to regionalize within the United States uh, as, a, as an important piece of that, not as a replacement for the regionalization uh, around the world, but at least a piece of the regionalization just has to be regionalization within the United States as well. So your, your wording here is reminding me of Chris Ritter's legislative plan for the 2019 conference. I think it was called the Jurisdictional Conference Plan, which um, uh, it broke down the current uh, jurisdictional conferences, and then it made three, I think, based on ideology, a, a liberal conference, a conservative conference, and a centrist conference. Is that kind of what you're talking about so far as what a region? very similar. Yeah, very similar yeah. To, to Chris Ritter's idea. Uh, okay. There are some differences in the way I've, I've gone about it. Hey, by the way, this is going to general conference as a petition from, from the Alaska conference. So is that is that part of the, um, oh, heck, what is this? that you, you linked to a place, is, would it be the unity and amicable separation, Robbins and Hitson? Uh, thing is that it or is it? Uh, I think I'm in, in that piece. I did mention that uh, Alaska proposal, but yes, at our at our annual conference in June uh, in Alaska, we adopted a regionalization proposal mm. that did call for uh, regionalization within the United States. Uh, actually, we call it North America because we've got some Canadian churches, so it's not fair to just call it a United States thing. Yeah, but, one of the petitions, well, it's probably not, but you, you want to include British Columbia in the Western jurisdiction. Exactly so, yes. Yeah, they should be represented. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so so the regionalization plan you're saying is nakedly, so the way that I've talked about it is, okay, so if you look at Bishop Carcano's language about Africans, she said they need to grow up um, in their theology with respect to LGBTQ uh, sexual ethics and 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 stuff. I, there's this worldview on the left that uh, when you believe in um, modernism or progressivism, that 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 the church is constantly evolving to a higher mental state, a higher spiritual state. Uh, there's a there's a, tr a trend towards liberation that we're on, and that any holdouts are really regressive, and they're not understanding the fullness of the gospel. And you paternally benevolently have to compel them to be more accepting than they want to be. So I think that they've seen, sorry, you were going to say something to that? Yeah. It's, it's as if, if you want to define paternalism, that would be it. Yeah. Yes. So, so that they've seen, so the easy talking point would be to say they're racist. Look at these black and brown people they disagree with. They're just going to remove them from the, the conversation. And I know that that's kind of disingenuous because they have those same paternal superior feelings towards their traditionalist brothers and sisters that are white on the continent of North America. They're just less tolerant of them because uh, they're closer in, in proximity to them. So that's where the animosity comes out. But there's there's this kind of disinterested, paternal, dismissive uh, stance towards Africans and Filipinos that are just not going to get with the pro uh, program. And that's that would be what's undergirding the regionalization plan as it currently stands. Would you agree with that? I would. In fact, uh, the uh, mainstream UMC uh, newsletter they put out not very long ago uh, mm -hmm. epitomized that yeah. when they just flat out said, uh, we have to be prepared to lose the Africans and Filipinos 
because they don't agree with us, basically, mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing and summarizing. But uh, I found that highly offensive, but characteristic of the, of the attitude there. Yeah, I think Mark Holland penned that one. I, I read yes, it on a, 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 I do a weekly live stream on Fridays where sometimes I read some of those documents. And so, yeah, it's it's one of these things where it's really putting at odds values that that liberals supposedly have, which is liberation for all oppressed people. But then when we consider third world, developing world people, part of the marginalized, marginalized groups, and we're alienating them, so, you know, we, we're alienating very poor people suffering for the faith across the world for the sake of a minority culture here in America that in, in relative stance to them is quite privileged, at least in a material sense. Um, but they've, they've made their choice. Their primary loyalty is to sexual minorities in North America, not to uh, third world believers that have the cross and flame in front of their church. Um, and they've explicitly said we're prepared to dismiss them and let them go. So what's what's there to be? I mean, so in my head, that's just clearly wrong and repugnant. And that uh, in my head, if if the left progressive contingent in the the United Methodist Church had any integrity at all, they just would have left after General Conference 2019 as it was legislated that they would do. Was that just fictitious of me to expect and be upset that it didn't happen? Or do you think that, well, I don't know. That's just such a mean line of, I don't know. I got to figure out how naive I am in going. I was just, I was so incensed that they stuck around and said, no, we're not going to. We have the high ground. We have the positions of power. We're not going anywhere. You can leave and we're going to gouge you on the way out if we let you go at all. It's just felt so wrong at every turn um and as i talk to you you're not making me feel like i'm any more naive at being uh affronted by this to to your mind it does uh clearly breach uh just common sense ethics and so would you the way i've had to justify this is they're just so close to the situation they don't see how wrong that they are the the presupposition is we're the good guys we're on the right side of history nothing we do can be wrong and I've just imagined them being very small-minded and self-interested and self-justifying in that way. Okay, so here's the question. Is there a more gracious interpretive, interpretation of that faction that I might have that doesn't engender such acrimony on my part? I, I think that uh, your characterization of it is, is certainly accurate, uh, but it might be only one side uh, and the more generous interpretation might be that, uh, in fact, they do feel like uh, that they are uh, powerfully uh, right on the uh, uh, the agenda uh, agendum that uh, is important to them, which is full inclusion, mm -hmm. to the point that that uh, that eclipses the importance of any other consideration. Mm -hmm and is in fact the pearl of great price that you you can sell the field or, or go buy the field mm -hmm. uh, just to get that piece uh, uh, taken care of and I, I think that's what's going on there uh, I, I think it's it's very wrong to have uh, taken that approach I, I think for example in in uh, Southern California where the annual conference is extracting a uh, a, uh, 
a hefty uh, exit fee on churches that want to disaffiliate in, a, in, a, in addition to the requirements uh, that are explicit in paragraph 2553. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, there's some threat uh, in North Georgia, in fact, that that may well uh, happen with the next round of uh, disaffiliation votes in that conference as well. Uh -huh. uh, and I, th I think that's a, a really uh, big error that the church could make and may well make in, in these annual conferences. In fact, uh, uh, I've put a petition in, a pair of petitions in uh, to the general conference that would call for uh, a, uh, a reinstatement of 2553, which is ex uh, expires at the end of this year. Uh -huh. uh, but my proposal would even be to reduce the... Uh, uh, the exit fee from two years of apportionments to just one current uh -huh. year only, uh, and not uh, and to re uh, revoke the authority of the annual conferences to add a, add additional conditions. Uh, so that would be my proposal. Uh, it Can't is you be an amicable. Good for you. That's wonderful. Which it would which make it really amicable. Uh, yeah. Amicable separation is what what we're, I think are, what our goal ought to be here. And that would be true amicability and separation. Yeah, it really has been. Uh, I, I read an op-ed 10 years ago saying, we know the split is coming. We've seen how badly other denominations have done at it. We're going to do better. And then it really has been disheartening oh. to see us not do any better. And I, I've been oh. meaning to set aside time and look for that op-ed just to put it out there and say, guys, you know, this was this was something we were all on board with. What What made you forget? But uh, I, I just love that you and others, I, I assume, I hope you're not the only one coming with amicable uh, uh, legislation for General Conference 2020 that's going to meet next year. Um, and of course, I hope to, to talk about the particulars of that in, in coming episodes on my channel. I, I did want to pivot at the last bit because your historical perspective, you've actually lived through the 1960s, the late 1960s, that was so racially uh, turbulent. In, in our nation, uh, in dealing with the United Methodist Church, we've talked about the global racial uh, divide, which of course, a lot of culture maps onto that. But within the United States right now, uh, the ideology of uh, critical race theory is ascendant, which it's, an, it's not an exact term, but uh, I associate it with race, race essentialism, believing that people of diff different races are actually different in some essential ways that individuals are primarily uh, members of their their racial group before they are individuals and that that we need to be maintaining these quotas and uh, that that the face of a given person and authority their racial stra uh, uh, heritage matters it's a whole family of ideas that is decidedly not classically liberal but is is uh, I would consider a regressive in a racialized sense but that seems to be what uh, General Commission on uh, Cosro, Status and Role of Women has had, as well as race and religion. And you see it um, on every level of church governance, annual conference and general conference level. It, meanwhile, um, yeah, Lewis Center on uh, Religion, whatever they are, they say that the, the people leaving the denomination are mostly white. But when you look at when the denomination was formed, 20% of United Methodists were black. 
nowadays, only 5% of United Methodists are black. They've been leaving this whole time. They're not interested in the United Methodist liberal project. Meanwhile, you know, we're, we're elevating whatever black voices we can find, not just black, but non-white people of color. And I keep saying we, because it takes me a while to detach. I'm not United Methodist. But what's to be said about the whole racial conversation in the United Methodist Church right now? It seems to me like the anxieties of the late 1960s are intentionally being flamed and that that when you look at um, Baltimore, Washington, or uh, uh, what's the other one? Um, but the same bishop, that they're intentionally flaming racial tensions and anxieties between people on the ground level. And I don't think it goes anywhere good. Do you see the same thing as I do? Does it feel like the same spirit of the 1960s or does it feel like something completely different to you? Uh, there are some differences and there are some similarities, yeah. And the similarities uh, uh, perhaps uh, outweigh the differences, I'm not sure. Uh, mm -hmm. But in any case, uh, the, uh, the primary flaw that I see in critical race theory as I've as I've understood it to the degree I've understood it. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's some question about the degree to which someone in my position who grew up a racist, in fact, uh, I would I would characterize myself following Bruce Robbins on this as a recovering racist. It's impossible to have grown up in the time that I did in the 40s, 50s, 60s in the deep South and not as a white person and not be a racist. That, that would not be possible. I, I didn't know anybody who wasn't a racist. Uh, although it would be like fish and water, you know, you, fish doesn't know anything about water because it's all random. And I didn't know anything about racism then because it was it was everything that uh, dominated life. And uh, it was only when I became uh, a late teenager that I began my process of recovering from that. And um, I'm still on that that rocky road. Uh, uh, so I have I have that perspective, and I have to understand that as part of it. But I do see this, uh, and I think I'm right about this, as uh, as one of the flaws in what I understand to be critical race theory, uh, and that is uh, th there tends to be uh, the same mistake that was made by uh, by the Nazis in in World War Two, uh, and it, remember when uh, uh, the the butcher Hadrick was assassinated in uh, the Czech Republic? I think it was Czechoslovakia at that time. Uh, the reaction of the Nazis was to go to two villages. Lidice was one of them. I can't remember the name of the other, and they totally destroyed the village. It's yeah never been it was so thoroughly destroyed everybody was killed mm. and it, it was a matter of assigning guilt for the associate for the assassination of hadrick to the whole village to mm. the different villages because they suspected that they had had uh, protected and harbored the assassins mm -hmm. there there is a there is a similar tendency in critical race theory to assign mass guilt for individual wrong. And yeah. that is never, ever, under any circumstances, an appropriate response 
to uh, to the wrong. And uh, so I, that is a that is a fatal flaw in the theory, as far as I'm concerned, to assign mass guilt because of individual wrong. Yeah. See, and I'm okay with that as long as we're talking about the sin of Adam, of which we're all equally guilty, and and uh, I'm I'm just fine talking about collective guilt in that sense. But I've often felt as though modern racialist um, ideology is trying to supplant uh, classical Christian doctrine with a new set of sinners, a new road to repentance and salvation. Um, and so I'm I'm regurgitating a lot of other people there. That's not my unique thought, but. Either way, you know, it, it is it is interesting to hear a man of your generation who grew up with uh, r- racialized air everyone was breathing, but you married a Hispanic woman that you've been happily married to for almost 60 years. You've been in the United Methodist Church, which has at least tried to pay lip service to, to um, I mean, for a while, I feel like everybody was aiming at a colorblind destination i think that's changing right now i i don't think i don't think king calls for right yeah but i i think that modern critical race theorists are aiming for continued segregation but kind of separate but equal time i'm not sure they even know what they're aiming at to be honest i think they just Mm -hmm. know that people like me are the enemy and they 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 want they want to hurt me so either either way i'm out of it now and i i hope they can't hurt me um but i i am continuing to care about the United Methodist Church. People ask me why it is that I continue to cover them after I've left. And, and the answer was, it, it was just too hostile for me to, to speak openly about on the inside. But I think somebody needs to talk about what's going on who is not with the program. And so I'm, I'm hopefully helpful in that way. And I think, Lonnie, you've been very gracious with me in, in, in tolerating um, me kind of pitching my worldview and how well it maps on to what's going on there. And uh, I hope it's been helpful. I, I I have no idea of knowing how many people are going to watch this, but as general conference comes closer, I do hope that um, several thousand people watch this and consider your words because your perspective is so much more informed than mine. You've actually been on the ground. You've actually seen how things work. Um, so, Hey, here's a good way to end this. How would you, encourage people to pray for the United Methodist Church in the lead up to the next general conference? I would encourage people to uh, plead for and expect uh, God's guidance. And uh, 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 the the task, of course, in actualizing that is to uh, try to uh, turn what you feel God's guidance to be into a legislative program. And that's what I try to do when, when I write my petitions. I've somewhere close to 60 of them now that'll be before the general conference. Okay. Well, so um, with this, you know, we publish on a few different platforms. Uh, there's always the words that come along with it in the show notes. You've got a Dropbox website where you've got your legislation that you're proposing. Would it, would it be fit, fitting for me to have the link to your Dropbox there so people can check out the legislation you're proposing? Sure. That'd be fine. Okay. Well, I'll viewers, I have no doubt all my viewers made it to the end of this this conversation so they can they can check those out and if you haven't looked at legislation before a lot of these are just two pages long um, some of them are more lengthy than that but um very interesting stuff if if people are still in the United Methodist Church I want to urge you uh, do what you can to be an informed person know who it is going to be representing you on the floor of general conference 
let them know how you feel about uh, the different things being presented, in particular about regionalization, because it does seem like that is the main thing that uh, they're trying to shove down everybody's throats, and it, it does not necessarily reflect the will of the body. So that will be determined next year. I don't have a vote. Um, Lonnie, is there anything else important that you think uh, anyone who spent the time with us should hear or know before they uh, conclude their time with us? I think it's all there, uh, Jeffrey. Thank you. Yeah, we had a good time. We, uh, we're going we're gonna to cut the feed now, and we're going to stay on uh, me and Lonnie and pray just a little bit because uh, uh, this is a time for fitting prayer. So uh, viewers, I'm going to ask you whenever uh, you turn this off, go ahead and say a prayer for the United Methodist Church, whether or not you're, you're in there or not still. And then um, if you think that this was a helpful conversation to have and you think other people would benefit from listening to it, go ahead and share it, like it, put it on whatever platforms you're on. Uh, appreciate all the engagement people give to this. And uh, I don't know what God's going to do with it, but may he be glorified. And, and insofar as it's useful, may the United Methodist Church be sanctified. All right. Thanks, friends. See you later.